Welcome. This is Listening to Hope. The podcast celebrates recipients of Ontario Rett Syndrome Association's Hope Fund, Canada's only fund dedicated to Rett Syndrome research in the country. Since 2014, when it was created, the fund has awarded over $500,000 in research grants to find a cure, a treatment for Rett Syndrome. Today, we are talking to a Hope Fund recipient, James H. Eubanks. He is a University of Toronto professor in the departments of physiology and surgery and a senior scientist and research division head at the Kremble Research Institute. When James began his academic career, researching Red Syndrome was not on his to-do list. His first project when he joined University of Toronto as a faculty member was to simply seek unidentified genes that played a role in early brain development. His team was making libraries of such genes, cloning and storing them on specially made grids for future studies. One day, he met clone 1A7. Clone 1A7, or plate 1 position A7, turned out to be a member of the methyl DNA binding factor family, which had only one known relative at that time, which was MECD2. And so this all was in 1995, well before MECD2 was recognized as the gene responsible for Rett syndrome. And we were working on MECD2, not because we were really interested in MECD2, but we were looking at it in the context of its relative that we had identified. In 1999, when MECD2 was identified as the cause of Rett syndrome, we shifted our interests away from clone 1A7, which turned out to be the third member of the methyl DNA binding factor family, or MPD3, and began focusing our efforts on the the gene that actually caused the the condition. Serendipity, I guess. There certainly is serendipity in science, and, and our intention wasn't to study Rett syndrome from the onset, and it just sort of evolved in that direction. And when it began evolving, Orsa stepped in. Orsa has, has been a, a great supporter of our laboratory efforts uh, over the years, and, and largely because they allowed us to do things that we weren't being funded to do by other organizations because the other organizations felt they were too high risk. One of the early proof of principle investigations that we did with, with in, in partnership with, with Orsa was to test whether we could improve the RET-like condition in a mouse model by only putting functional MECP2 back into a specific region of the brain. And this has bearing today, because with gene therapy, that's exactly what you're trying to do, is to restore MECP2 function to the brain. But you're unlikely to be able to get it everywhere in the brain. So the question becomes, is there a region or a small, excuse me, a small number of neurons that you could target and have successful benefit? And our work showed that the answer is yes, there is. We were actually able to significantly improve the uh, RET-like condition of a mouse by only putting MECD2 back into a few neurons. Now, they were specific neurons, but these are neurons that could conceivably be targeted by gene therapy. Um, So that was one of the earlier studies that we did. And why was this so important? Remember, in the early days, we didn't really know that Rett syndrome was a treatable condition. 
there was a lot of people in the field who thought that it was irremediable. And so some of this work was uh, essential to show that the condition could be improved and that manipulations had hope. Um, and I think that our work helped set the stage for some of the studies now that are finding their way into the clinic. Recently, for example, the HOPE Fund contributed to research done by James and his team to try out a therapeutic study on mice affected with Rett syndrome. The results were that, yeah, if you administer this cocktail of antioxidants and vitamins and nutrients to the Rett syndrome mice, their condition gets a little better. And with the help of the Ontario Brain Institute, um, this has now turned into what we hope will be a clinical trial. It's been halted because of the COVID restrictions, but it's at least on the books to, to actually be tested in some Rett syndrome patients in, in the very near future, we hope. Um, so ORSA has, has supported us in starting these investigations. When they gain traction, then we're able to obtain funding from larger government sources. Uh, for the case of the new target that I discussed, uh, we actually were able to get support from the United States Department of Defense, a multi-million dollar award. And that wouldn't have been possible without having enough data to convince their organization that the studies had merit. But amidst cutting-edge laboratory research and multi-million dollar research grants, James reminds us of something important. I think that interacting with uh, patients and family members is really important. Um, we have routinely had uh, patients, uh, family members come to my lab at the Toronto Western Hospital uh, to meet my staff. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a quick quick little story here. I had a, a graduate student who was working on a project by administering a drug that we thought would restore MECD2 function to a specific type of MECD2 mutation. And she came into my office one day and, and said, Dr. Eubanks, it worked. It worked. We've got full-length MECD2. And I go, okay, that's great. Um, are you ready to give this drug to Abby? It was the patient that had this particular mutation and she looked at me and she said no and I said come back when you're ready and it really highlights that what you see in a test tube is great but until you're ready to actually say I want to put this and let a patient use it then you know that there's more work to be done and getting to know the patients tells you the urgency and the importance of keeping that in mind as you go forward with your investigations. Over the course of his career James has interacted with many families across the world affected with Rett syndrome. Without fail, the one question they've all asked him, when will there be a cure for Rett syndrome? The answer to that is we really don't know. And, and it's tough to have to tell parents that the, the treatment that you're looking for doesn't exist today. And we have to be very careful because a clinical trial is not necessarily a treatment. A clinical trial is an experiment. And a clinical trial is an experiment on your loved one. And we have to be pretty sure that what we're going to be trying on your loved one has a chance of being successful and as little risk as possible before we're going to green light it to go forward. 
and that takes time. But here's something else James says. I think uh, that, that there's reason for optimism. Um, I, I'm always cautious of saying that because of the timelines, but I, I do think that we're, we're learning so much more. Um, if, you, if you just go back uh, 20 years, there was so little known um, about Rett syndrome. If you go back 30 years, it probably was even contentious what Rett syndrome was. Two different positions could look at the same patient and, and have very different uh, clinical diagnoses. We're, we're largely past that now, and, and we're at a stage where a lot of um, opportunities for therapies are being discovered. And so there, there's a lot of cautious optimism that things are getting to the point where real improvements are going to be had. The technologies are advancing quicker than, than you can really imagine. We're not there yet with all of the technologies that are required, but there are advances being made that will open doors that we don't even recognize as doors at this moment, and it's going to happen very quickly. Chances are some of those doors will be opened by young researchers here in Canada. Any advice for them? Research careers are great, but don't think of it as something that's an, an easy career. Um, I tell my students you can work any 16 hours of the day you choose, and the other eight hours you're thinking about what you do during the other 16 hours. Um, it's, a, it's a very difficult career. The pressures are numerous. Uh, it can affect your uh, lifestyle um, and be serious. It's not something to be taken in a flippant manner, uh, but if you really are uh, willing to put in the hours, um, withstand a lot of constructive criticism, um, be rejected more than you're approved, but at the end of the day, it, it really can make a difference um, when see something for the first time and are able to present something to the world that before that was unknown, it, it really has an impact on you. So I, I think that there's a lot of opportunities. They may not be in the conventional academic streams. The uh, research world is changing. Um, the old academic scientists, as we used to know them, are becoming fewer and fewer, but there's more opportunities in small biotech companies and things where research is still conducted, but the dynamics of how it's conducted are changing. And I think there's a, a lot of uh, opportunities going to be available for those sorts of things in the future for those who are, are willing to put in the time. Any last words, James, before we end this podcast? In my PhD thesis, I wrote a, I quoted a prologue from Jerry Garcia, what a long, strange trip it's been. That still applies. Thank you for listening to Hope with James H. Eubanks, a Hope Fund recipient.